can't say enough about the food. The staff was fantastic. Great balance between programming and free time. Speaker uh, was amazing. I'm certainly planning to go back next year, and I think a number of us men should join them next year. So think about this time of year and, and set some time aside to join them out at Sunny Bray Bible Camp. Would you join me in prayer? Lord, you, you made it really clear to us that uh, we can't survive on good food alone. But we need food, spiritual food. We need your word. And so I pray that you would open it up for us all today, that we'd be fed and nourished spiritually. In Christ's name, amen. Well, this is now our fourth week on our journey to the cross. We've been reading through Luke's gospel as Jesus journeys toward the city of Jerusalem. And Dave pointed this out the, the first week, but before even the midpoint of Luke's gospel, and it's 24 chapters, we find this verse in the ninth chapter, and it's just an amazing verse. Here's what we read. As the time approached for him to be taken up to heaven, Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem. Jesus was a man on the mission. He knew why he came to earth, and he knew the timeline of his life. In regards to why he came to earth, he knew he had come to earth to die for the sins of all humanity. Yes, as they were moving to Jerusalem three times, it's recorded in Luke's Gospel, that he reminded them of what was going to happen when he arrived there. Just before they got there, here's what he said to his disciples. Jesus took the twelve aside and told them, we are going up to Jerusalem, and everything that is written by the prophets, and by the way, Go to the prophet Isaiah and read chapter 53 before Easter. It makes it so very clear that Jesus was going to bear the sins of the whole world. Everything that you've ever been ashamed about, anything you regret, he bore it on the cross, received the punishment it deserved so we could be free, so we could be forgiven. Continuing on. Yes, everything that was written by the prophets about the Son of Man will be fulfilled. He will be delivered over to the Gentiles, they will mock him, insult him, spit on him. They will flog him and kill him. On the third day, he will rise again. Friends, I think it's very fair to say that Jesus knew in great detail what was going to happen to him when he arrived in the great city of Jerusalem. And although he knew that death was his destiny there, he courageously moved on towards that city. When Jesus finally got to Jerusalem, things were initially really good. People welcomed him. They were praising God because of his presence in the city. They were taking off their coats and lying them on the ground so that his, as he entered on the cold, as a way of honoring him. During his first four days in the city, Jesus regularly went to the temple. That was his, you might say, his weekly agenda. And at the temple, he did a lot of teaching and preaching he did a lot of challenging. He was answering questions that the religious leaders were asking him. He told stories about this very poor lady who, who gave so incredibly generous, generously. And he also told them that this beautiful temple is going to be destroyed. And we know it was in A.D. 70. On the fifth evening of being back in Jerusalem, he celebrated the Passover with his disciples. And then they left the city they walked through a short valley called the Valley of Kidron or Kidron Valley onto the Mount of Olives. 
And that brings us up to today's text. So I'm going to ask you to open your Bibles to Luke 22. If you don't have a Bible, we'll have the text here on the screen for you this morning. That is Luke chapter 22, and I'm going to begin reading verse 39, and I'm going to make a few comments in between the scripture reading here this morning. So Jesus went out, that is, from Jerusalem. They just had the evening meal. As usual, to the Mount of Olives. And his disciples followed him. And think about it. They've been following now for three years. During the week before Jesus was arrested, tried and crucified, he was basically living in the city during the day, spending time at the temple, and then in the evening he'd walk across the Kidron Valley and they'd, you might say, camp out on the Mount of Olives. It was only about a quarter mile of apart. In John's Gospel, we're told that they stayed in a garden. And Matthew's gospel splashes it out a little more and says that the garden was called the Garden of Gethsemane, right. which means olive press. In other words, there were olive trees there. And if you go there today, you will in fact see olive gardens, these olive trees over a thousand years old. Verse 40. On reaching the place, he said to them, pray that you will not fall into temptation." Jesus obviously knows something about human nature. We are prone to give in to temptation, even in the smallest ways and sometimes in the biggest ways. So on this occasion, he said to his disciples, I want you to pray so you won't fall into temptation because Jesus knew what was about to happen. He knew that he was about to be arrested and he knew the temptation that the disciples would have to just run away from him, to be disloyal. And he also knew that Peter, almost his right-hand man, was going to deny him three times. So Jesus called them to pray, but Jesus also understood his own need for prayer. He needed to talk to his father about the plans that they had to redeem this world. And so we read in verse 41, he, Jesus, that is he, meaning Jesus, withdrew about a stone's throw away beyond them and prayed. And here's what Jesus prayed. Father, if you are willing, take this cup from me, yet not my will, but yours be done. Friends, I think this may be the greatest prayer that has ever been prayed. If you can think of a greater one, I want, you, I want to know what, what would it be. But I really think this is the greatest prayer ever. In essence, Jesus was saying, Father, I, I would like it very much. If I didn't have to experience the cup of your wrath, that's what the cup was all about, the cup of God's wrath. Yes, against the sins of all of humanity. But if there is no other way to redeem and restore and save humanity, I will bear the sins of the whole world on a Roman cross. I will receive in myself the punishment that their sins deserve. It was obviously a very difficult and horrifying assignment that our Lord was given. And yet he embraced it when he prayed the words, not my will, but yours be done. In response to his prayer, his father knew in heaven knew what was going on in his heart. <laughs> and so he sent an angel to strengthen him. As we read in verse 43, an angel from heaven appeared to him and strengthened him. Whatever we're up against, God will meet it with the amount of strength we need. In this case, Jesus needed an angel. Now, uh, to underscore just how intense this situation was, look at the next verse. 
And being in anguish, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat was like drops of blood falling to the ground. (laughs) Does any of us understand that type of intensity? Jesus was in agony over the assignment that God had given him. And yes, an assignment that he ultimately embraced when he prayed that great prayer. Luke then writes, When he, that is Jesus, rose from prayer and went back to his disciples, he found them asleep, exhausted from sorrow. And you have to ask, why in the world were they exhausted from sorrow when in fact they were sleeping and Jesus was the one who was wrestling in prayer? I could speculate. Hadn't Jesus told them that Peter was going to deny him three times and maybe they were so troubled over the fact that Jesus' right-hand man was going to betray him three times? How were they to understand that? Or was it because they were starting to understand finally, finally, that Jesus was going to suffer and die? You, You know, it says in the Gospels that they didn't understand that when he was talking to them. But maybe finally it was starting to sink in. Or was it because of something Jesus said a few days earlier? You remember Jesus told them, I'm leaving you. I'm leaving you, and you can't come with me. And you imagine you're giving three years to a life to a man, and you're following, and all of a sudden he's leaving. <laughs> but he did give him a great promise, didn't he? I'm going to prepare a place for you. But maybe they were still trying to sort all this out. Maybe it was all of the above. But one thing for sure, friends: Jesus was not impressed that they were sleeping when they should have been praying. He asked them, "Would you watch and pray?" He needed their support, and they also needed to pray so they wouldn't fall into temptation. Hmm. Look at verse 46. Jesus always asks such tough questions. Why are you sleeping? (laughs) Get up and pray so that you not fall into temptation. Which leads us, or I think, one of the saddest scenes in all of the New Testament. And here it is. While he was still speaking... A crowd came up, and the man who was called Judas, one of the twelve, was leading them. He approached Jesus to kiss him. But Jesus asked him, Judas, are you betraying the Son of Man with a kiss? How incredibly sad. Judas, one of the twelve. He had been with Jesus for three years. Jesus had loved this guy in so many ways. Jesus... (laughs) had performed miracles in his presence. He's seen Lazarus rise from the dead. He had listened to his amazing teachings. And now he was there, betraying Jesus. (laughs) Yes, into the hands of an armed crowd. You know, in another gospel, we read that when Judas first approached him, he said, ah, greetings, teacher. Like, how insincere was that? And now he wants to betray him with a kiss. You know, we always think of a kiss as a wonderful sign of affection. Hey, and those of you who have been working through the couple's devotional, did you see that wonderful invitation to make your kisses with your spouse at least 15 seconds long? Did you guys catch that? If you haven't been doing it, you better get into that document. A 15-second kiss is wonderful. (laughs) But you know what? Jesus... Jesus wouldn't allow 
Jesus wouldn't allow Judas to kiss him. So he asked Judas, are you betraying the Son of Man with a kiss? And then what happened next, and then what happened next could have gotten right out of hand if Jesus had not intervened. When Jesus' followers saw what was about to happen, they said, Lord, should we strike our swords, strike with our swords? And one of them struck the servant of the high priest, cutting off his right ear. And of course, we all know that was Peter. The impulsive Peter, the first to jump out of the boat, the first to grab a sword. He didn't even wait for Jesus to give an answer. But Jesus did answer, no more of this, he said. And he touched the man's ear and healed him. Jesus obviously had some disciples who would go to bat for him to protect him. But Jesus would not allow it to happen because he had an appointment with death. Oh yes, the other gospels say he could have called 12,000 angels or 12 legions of angels to come down and protect him. He didn't need his 11 disciples. But that would have interfered with God's great plan for his life. In the words of Jesus from John's gospel, shall I not drink the cup the Father has given me? And the answer to that question was obviously yes. And then after graciously healing the man who had come out to arrest him, Jesus addressed the armed crowd with these words. Then Jesus said to the chief priests, the officers of the temple guard, and the elders who had come out for him, am I leading a rebellion that you have come with swords and clubs? Every day I was with you in the temple courts and you did not lay a hand on me. But this is your hour when darkness reigns. You know, in these few verses, Jesus is basically calling this crowd a bunch of cowards because they could have tried to arrest them during the day, but you know why they didn't? They were afraid of the people because the people were really excited about Jesus, what he was teaching them and what he was doing. Furthermore, Jesus says to them that their behavior was nothing less than darkness. It was nothing less than evil. And most certainly, it was their hour of darkness. For they were involving themselves in the arrest and ultimately the crucifixion of a man who was innocent, not to mention the fact that he was the eternal Son of God, the epitome of goodness. Friends, that's how evil darkness can be at times. What it perpetrates on innocent, innocent people. And we all know from watching the news how darkness does reign at times in certain situations in our world today. You know, as I was thinking this, this song, we sing this one line about 10 or 11 times, let heaven come. And today as I sang, I, I sang it, I thought of a situation in our world for every time I said it. I, I, th I thought of Russia and some of the things that I hear that Mr. Putin is doing. And I said, Lord, let heaven come into his heart. And, and you think of how powerful China is today and how big their armed force is getting. Oh, Lord, let heaven come into the leadership of China. And then we think of the White House. We need heaven to come there as well. We need heaven to come in the leadership of Canada. We need heaven to come in the, in the hearts of our cities where there's so much brokenness. We need heaven to come, hey, in our own hearts. We, we need heaven to come in our, in our families. 
where things are out of sorts. So I ask the question here this morning, what can we take away from this passage? Well, yeah, what can we learn? In closing here, I have six takeaways here this morning. First of all, we too should expect some disappointment with our brothers and sisters in Christ. That's not exactly good news, by the way. <laughs> but we need to understand, friends, that they have not become Christ-like. He is making beautiful things as we sung this morning. But that work is not complete. That work is not complete. Jesus himself, friends, his disciples were sleeping when they should have been supporting him. He was betrayed by someone who had invested three years you know, of his life into. And he knew that in, in his heart that his disciples are about to run. And Peter was going to deny him. Disappointment was part of his experience. And you know, friends, we live in the same world that Jesus lived in. We live with other human, imperfect human beings. And that includes each and every one of us. In the words of Jesus, the spirit is always willing, but boy, is the flesh incredibly weak. So many of our good intentions do not come to fruition. And regardless of how mature another Christian can become or will become, they will still have moments when they fall short of Christ-likeness. It's just the way it is. It is just the way it is. So like Jesus, we must continue to love those who disappoint us, to forgive them, to restore them. And when we have been the ones who have disappointed, we need to be quick to apologize, quick to make things right. Secondly, and this isn't all that great news neither, but anyways, I think we too should expect some opposition in our efforts to be faithful followers of Jesus Christ. Jesus knew much about opposition. He had a substantial group of religious people who really made life miserable for him. He was repeatedly confronted by them and ultimately killed by them. And you know, Jesus knew that his disciples as well <laughs> would face opposition in life and so he told them right up front, this will happen to you as well. Expect similar treatment. You know, in many countries of our world now, right now, many people face varying degrees of persecution simply because they're followers of Jesus Christ. And that's why we started to pray, I think about a year ago, at the suggestion uh, of Mana, Mana Manhas, that we would begin praying for the persecuted church because it's real. You know, we live in a country, we live in a country with so much freedom. We have terrific freedom to, to worship and to follow Christ. But we should never forget that we will face opposition simply because we have an enemy, we have an adversary who wants to undermine our faith, who wants to lead us into moral failure and compromise. Without a doubt, the biblical worldview is this, there is spiritual conflict out there. There is spiritual warfare. And so, so I say, let's expect some opposition along the way. 
And everyone here this morning should stay alert. Stay alert to anything, to anything that may undermine your relationship with Jesus. And that anything can be bad things, but it can be even really good things that might undermine your faith in Christ. And most certainly, let's be a people who continue to do the things that strengthen us spiritually. Reading God's word, reflecting on God's word, prayer, spending time with other believers, talking about your faith, hey, going on a retreat, worshiping together. For most certainly, we can expect some opposition along the way. And now some good news. <laughs> we too can expect God to strengthen us. When Christ was agonizing in prayer, God sent him an angel. Whatever we need, God will send our way, friends. You know, I recently came across this verse in the Psalms that has, has stayed with me for over a month now. It's Psalm 2911, which reads, The Lord gives strength to his people. Hmm. Let's always remember that God is our source of strength. If you're going through a difficult time and you need strength, don't run to a friend first. Don't run off, first of all, to see a professional counselor. And by the way, I don't, I don't want to be misunderstood. You should seek your friends for support. And if you need counseling, get it. Make sure you get it. But friends, let's make sure that we first of all ultimately seek our ultimate source of strength. I recently asked a dear friend, how they made it through a difficult season in life. Both he and his wife had cancer. How did he get through this? Christ was our strength, was his answer. Our faith has never been stronger. Friends, let's give the God the privilege <laughs> of meeting us at our point of need. And now here the fourth takeaway. We too should pray in times of temptation. I think maybe that's the obvious takeaway from this passage. Two times in this passage, Jesus clearly instructed his disciples to pray when being tempted. So when you face temptation, and everyone here will today, maybe not today, but sometime in the next 24 hours, simply call out to God for help. If tempted, and I think the big temptation is always to be disloyal to Jesus. Pray that he'd help you remain faithful. Hey, if you're tempted to grumble or complain over something little, apologize quickly and ask God to give you a spirit of gratefulness and thankfulness. Friends, I, I really believe that you don't fall into temptation when you're on your knees. When you're on your knees, God is going to meet you. God lifts up the humble. And now the fifth takeaway should we not join Jesus in praying this prayer? <laughs> not my will, but yours be done. Friends, we are to be a people who live for God's will. And most certainly, friends, God has clearly told us what his will is. I can look out here this morning and say with 100% confidence that it's God's will for everyone here today to love people. I can look out here at everyone today and say, I know it's God's will that you forgive, that forgiveness is part of your character. I, I can say 100% that it's God's will that you use your gifts to build his kingdom, that you serve people. 
friends, these things are so very clear. God wants us to be joyful, thankful people. He wants us to worship him. He wants us to contribute in making disciples wherever we are. And may I add, I think that when we're doing, we're conscious of living in his will, we are the most joyful people we can ever be. We're designed to live for his will. And now sixthly, and this is, I think, the most important thing, really, that this passage teaches us, and it's simply this. We have an amazing Savior. We have an absolutely amazing Savior. Jesus willingly chose to go to the cross for our sins when he prayed that prayer, not my will, but yours be done. Although emotionally the thought of dying on a Roman cross horrified him, although the, the thought of carrying all of our sins, the sins of the whole world on himself, receiving God's wrath against our sin, I think simply overwhelmed him. Yet Jesus went along with his Father's plan to win us back. Let me close here this morning with this story. About four years ago, my wife Lori and I had the privilege of going to the country of Israel. During our time in the city of Jerusalem, we went to the Holocaust Museum. I think we have a picture of that. It's a very modern building. If you went in there and read everything and listened to everything, it would take you plus 20 hours. It contains artifacts, pictures, wall-mounted write-ups on what had taken place during the Second World War to Jewish people, but not just Jewish people. There were other people as well. But after spending an hour and a half in that museum, I was, em I was just emotionally spent. After exiting the museum, I heard a Jewish tour guide say as he was standing outside the museum, and he put his hands up and he said, now that was our past. But now this is our glorious future. I, I couldn't believe the graciousness of his words. And by the way, before you enter the museum, it, there's a plaque that says, this museum does not exist to condemn anyone. But just as a reminder, let's not let this happen again. Again, a very gracious comment. After hearing the tour guide say that, I, I just simply broke into tears and walked off for myself and it took me three or four minutes to gather myself and I got on the tour bus. From there, the tour traveled a few miles away to the Church of All Nations. The Church of All Nations, now almost 100 years old, built by the Catholics on the foundations of two other churches that they had built, one in the 4th and one in the 12th century. Inside this church, at the very front of the church, there's a rock, a really large rock, on which Jesus allegedly prayed the prayer, Father, not my will, but yours be done. As I stood there by that rock, thinking about Jesus' prayer, that great prayer that sent him to the cross to deal with our sin once and for all, it occurred to me, friends, it occurred to me, that Jesus also died for the perpetrators of the Holocaust. I was, I was so greatly moved. How great is Christ's love for us? How great is Christ's love for every human being, regardless of what they have done? Friends, Jesus is an amazing, amazing Savior. Would you bow in prayer with me? I'm not going to lead in prayer here, but I just want to encourage you to thank Jesus once again that he bore your sins on the cross. 
so that you could call God Father and enjoy Him forevermore. Would you just take a moment to thank God for that? Thank our Lord Jesus.